0: Today we are embarking on a short, topical sermon series. And the theme of these sermons that we are starting today uh, is relating to one another in the body of Christ. There are many ways uh, and many facets how Scripture calls us to relate to one another. But for the next three sermons... Uh, we will be looking at three particular calls that Scripture gives us in how to relate to one another. And the three calls that we will be looking at are walk in wisdom, walk in love, and walk with a trained conscience. Walk in wisdom, walk in love, and walk with a trained conscience. Now, before I jump into the first of these calls to walk in wisdom. Let me point out the reason why we are addressing this cluster of 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 topics, this theme in our in our relational uh, dimension. Because, and let me illustrate perhaps the best way would be to illustrate with an example from scripture. The example comes from the book of Galatians. And by the way, um, for some of you have some of you have asked now that we are done with the book of First Samuel, uh, what's going to be the next book we are going to delve into um, uh, after we have finished through First Samuel? Uh, so let me give you the the clue to that. Uh, it's going to be the book of Galatians. We're going to start that in the fall. I'm preparing through it right now, and uh, as I was preparing through it recently. Um, I noticed something that grabbed my attention. So the illustration I'm about to give you comes from the book of Galatians. We're not starting the theme on Galatians today. This is just an example. In the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul is confronting the believers about some significant theological errors that they were in danger of. And for the majority of the book, The Apostle Paul is mounting biblical argument after biblical argument to help them correct their direction so that they would be in line and faithful with Scripture doctrinally. But at the end of chapter 5, after five chapters of mounting argument after argument to correct them, The Apostle Paul gives a new correction, not a theological correction, but a relational correction. In the midst of theological and doctrinal arguments, these Christians were in danger not merely of turning away from the gospel, but they were also in danger of bidding and devouring one another. So Paul says in Galatians 5, 13 through 15, he says, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. What, were the, what, were, what, were, what was the danger that these Christians were facing? Clearly, it was theological error. But it was not just theological error. It was also relational error. The, the error of, of bidding and devouring one another. Now my aim here today, as we launch in this new short topical sermon series, is not to jump into Galatians 5, but simply to illustrate that one danger that Christian can fall into when we have debates about important issues, when we have disagreements about important issues, one of the dangers we can fall into is not nearly to fall off the wagon in terms of staying true to Scripture doctrinally, We can also fall off the wagon in staying true to Scripture relationally. And the pandemic has been a season when we have been challenged, all of us, in so many ways, including how we approach our freedom. Freedom to wear a mask, or freedom not to wear a mask. Add to this the political season we have been in, and then the rise of the racial tensions, and the rise of the social justice movement, and the fact that Christians have responded in different ways to each of these themes and categories. Now, My aim today is not to speak to these particular Categories, but simply to draw our hearts to consider how Scripture calls us to relate to one another in the body of Christ. And today we look at the biblical call to walk in wisdom. Would you open God's Word to the book of James, chapter 3, I'll be reading from verse 13 to verse 18. The book of James, chapter 3, from verse 13 to 18. If you don't have a Bible, we encourage you to grab a Bible, provided in the chairs in front of you. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take this Bible home with you and read it. It's yours to take. We'd love for you to take it and read it. But here's God's word for us this morning. James, chapter 3, from verse 13 to 18. Who is wise? by those who make peace, amen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you join me in prayer, asking God to bless the proclamation of his word in our hearts as we hear. Let's pray. Father, as we have read your word, and as we get ready to hear an explanation of it, I pray that you would assist me to proclaim it faithfully, and in the power of your Spirit. And more than that, Lord, I also pray that you would help us to hear it as you have intended it. Help us to have open ears and a willing heart for the glory of your great name, for the glory of Christ, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Why did James bring up the issue of Wisdom. Particularly at this moment in his book, we're, we're sort of parachuting to this passage in this book, and it's important for us to understand what was going on before this text and after this text, to understand how this paragraph that we have read together functions in the book. In the text prior, James spent some time exposing and speaking about the destructive ways of Of using our tongues James spoke how believers can use their tongues in destructive ways creating a lot of damage in the context following our passage in chapter 4 James speaks and exposes the open conflict that was going on among these believers and in between these two themes of the destructive use of the tongue and the open conflict that these believers were having, James addresses what seems to be the key. And we would expect the key to be love. These believers surely could hear and, and use some encouragement about loving one another. But that's not what James speaks of here. He could have spoken about the need for them to serve each other. Surely they could have used some of that encouragement. But that's not what James brings up in this particular scenario. Instead, what he brings up is the issue of wisdom. And the question is, why? Why wisdom? Now consider perhaps this connection, the tendency for us to misuse our tongues against others, whether it's through slander or gossip or judgmentalism or dismissiveness or putting down of the others, such tendencies to use our tongues in this way comes from pride. And what is pride fueled by? By a personal sense of wisdom. We think we know better. We think we understand the situation better. We see what other people can't see. So there is a sense of personal wisdom that we assume for ourselves. So James speaks here of the theme of wisdom. But if our wisdom is fueling our cravings to boast or feel superior to others, and thus speak in destructive ways, James would tell us it's a wrong kind of wisdom. The biblical call to wisdom challenges us not merely to to pursue wisdom in a general way, as if all wisdom is equal wisdom. No, the biblical call to wisdom challenges us to discern what kind of wisdom are we actually pursuing as this text shows us there are two vastly different kinds of wisdom which produce vastly different outcomes and this passage will help us understand the difference between the two how to spot them out and why be motivated to pursue the wisdom from above if you like taking notes uh, the message this morning will have four points Uh, The four points are going to be the following. How do you show wisdom? How do you show wisdom? How do you spot out earthly wisdom? How do you spot out earthly wisdom? How do you spot out the wisdom from above? How do you spot out the wisdom from above? And finally, how to stay motivated to pursue the wisdom from above? How to stay motivated to pursue the wisdom from above. I pray that the the Holy Spirit this morning will help us understand and discern by what kind of wisdom are our hearts and minds fueled. How do you show wisdom? Verse 13. Is it through how many things you know? Is it through your ability to understand how things work? Is it through your ability to explain things? Is it through the fact that you've already thought about tons of stuff and you already have very clear convictions on a number of issues? How do you show wisdom? Here's how James challenges us to show wisdom in verse 13. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? And his answer is, By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Did you hear that? By his good conduct. Now, earlier in this letter, the the Apostle James has been challenging Christians to show their faith through their works. Remember that in chapter 2? He wrote that one of the signs of true faith is that it produces new kind of actions. Otherwise, it's a dead faith. And now in chapter 3, James brings a similar challenge to the theme of wisdom. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it through his good conduct, through how he lives, through how he interacts with others. And what should be the distinguishing mark of wisdom, of relating to others? The distinguishing mark is meekness. Works done in the meekness of wisdom. Now, what is the, the meekness of wisdom? What is that? The Greek word for meekness could also be translated as gentleness, gentleness. Or humility. It is the the gentleness that comes from wisdom or the humility that wisdom brings. In other words, wisdom brings gentleness and humility. And true wisdom shows itself in a behavior that is gentle and is humble in the way we interact with one another. So let me ask you have you considered that true wisdom? Is that which affects your behavior, your conduct, and how you relate to others? Think think about it with me for a moment. What good is wisdom if it does not affect your conduct? What good is wisdom if it only gives you explanations or information or insight, but has no impact on how you relate to others or how you live? Couples, if your wife or husband were to give you a grade on your wisdom quality and quantity based not on your information, based not on your convictions, based not on your articulateness, But based on your conduct and how your works spoken and done in gentleness and humility, what kind of grade would your wisdom have? It's not about how well you understand things or articulate things but in how you're able to relate to others with gentleness and with meekness. Children or youth or students, what are ways that you are tempted to show off wisdom, that you're wiser than your parents or than the adults in your life? I already saw some parents nudging their kids. Is it by having a witty comment? Or perhaps it's your silence treatment. Ah, mom and dad don't know enough. I know better. Now, you won't say that, but that's what you think in your mind and heart. Or putting others down, whether verbally or in silence. uh, Not knowing or thinking that they don't know what you know. Do you think that you're wise by doing something in secret that no one would know? As tempting as those paths might be, consider that God evaluates wisdom differently than we do. True wisdom shows up and affects our conduct through the works done in meekness in ways that don't draw attention to ourselves, in, those, in ways that don't put the spotlight on us. Now, in contrast to the weakness that comes from true wisdom, James exposes some of the facets of another kind of wisdom, a wisdom that appears to be wise and understanding and asserting itself and boasting and self-confident. This wisdom, this alternate. Wisdom, alternative wisdom, is, is an earthly wisdom. So point number two, how do you spot out earthly wisdom? Listen to how James instructs us to spot out earthly wisdom. Verse 14 and 15, he says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic Do you see what characterizes earthly wisdom? It comes out from a heart filled with bitter jealousy or selfish ambition. Two elements. Two elements that easily fill our hearts, even if we are Christians. The word for jealousy here is the word for zeal. Now, zeal by itself is not evil. Having zeal is not a bad thing. We can have zeal for good things, zeal for God, zeal for God's house, zeal for God's people, zeal for godliness, but our zeal can also be corrupted. We can be zealous out of frustration. We can be zealous out of being hurt. We can be zealous out of a sense of injustice. We can be zealous because we have not received what we have expected. And in such situations, zeal can take the form of jealousy or envy. Zeal becomes bitter. The second element that can lodge in our hearts is selfish ambition. In, in the English language, these are two words. Ambition, that is selfish. In the Greek language, it's one word. It's not about being ambitious in and of itself. The, the Greek language means readiness for strife having a combative attitude, being edgy for disputes, insisting that things must be done your own way. Can you spot in your own heart tendencies when this element shows up in your interactions? Are you prone to turn small things into arguments with others? Are those around you who know you better if you were to ask them if they need to walk on eggshells around you would they confirm do others have the freedom to bring up things to you and not be afraid that you will respond with critical comments back or verbal attacks James says if you have bitter jealousy And selfish ambition don't boast don't boast that you know better the self-perceived wisdom and understanding that you are boasting about is far from the truth actually it's false to the truth such wisdom James says is not from above but instead it's earthly it comes from below and it's also unspiritual and demonic. Now the word for unspiritual simply means that this earthly wisdom is natural to us. It is part of the package of being born as humans. That's what unnatural, un- unspiritual means here. This is the wisdom each of us inherit in our human nature. This kind of wisdom is downloaded in our software, in our system, before the system is ever booted and started. It's the kind of, you know, Windows 10, if you have Windows or whatever Mac stuff comes out these days. It's the operating system that comes booted with your machine so that before you even start it, it's already there. but just because it is part of the original package and the default inclination it doesn't mean that we should have it let it have a free reign in us it simply means that you don't have to look very hard to find it in your life it's all over It's all over. It affects every kind of relationship. But just because it's natural in you doesn't mean you should let it have a free reign. James says that our naturally loaded wisdom is also demonic. This is a way of saying that our natural wisdom has been corrupted by evil, by the devil. So that bitter zeal and selfish ambitions are tools that the demonic world employs to get us to do what they wish us to do. So that when we act in our natural inclinations to, to live and relate to others in this way, we are playing out the script of the devil. Well, oh, friends, consider, consider why it should never be okay for us to to be okay with our natural inclinations for these roots of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition because they are demonic. Bitter zeal and selfish ambition are roots that find a home in every one of our hearts. And when that happens... James helps us see the fruit that they produce. Look at verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. These bitter roots, in other words, in our hearts create a host of relational damage. A host of relational damage. Now we know what disorder looks like in a relationship. Whether that's in a familial relationship, whether it's in a church relationship, whether it's in a friendship or work setting, we know what disorder relationally looks like. You might be experiencing some of that right now. But what is every vile practice? What does that refer to? It can refer to any destructive behavior any destructive behavior, from slandering people, to anger, to abuse, whether it's physical, verbal, emotional, to manipulation, to gossip, to lying. And the list can go on and on and on. The, the, the phrase, every vile practice, is a way of saying that the fruits coming out of the roots of bitter zeal and selfish ambition are a bottomless list. You know when you go, go to the restaurant and you order a, a, an order of fries, and some restaurants have a bottomless fries. You can get as much as you want. Now let me turn the picture to a negative sense, a nev- negative ex- way to understand this. So many of us have been affected by the storm that hit Texas a few months ago. Pipes were bursting, freezing. And some of you know what it means to have a a pipe that burst. It keeps leaking and leaking and leaking and floods the house and does a lot of damage. Now imagine if the pipe that had burst was not the water pipe that brings in clean water into your house. Imagine it's a sewage pipe. And what leaks is a lot of, Dirty, ugly, nasty stuff. And it's not just nasty looking. It's incredibly nasty smelling. The list of vile, even practices, it's not like the bottomless fries at a restaurant that you enjoy having. And when you're done with one portion, you can get more. It's more like the the sewage, leakage, That keeps leaking and leaking and leaking, and it makes a disaster and it smells around, all around. When selfish ambition and when bitter jealousy are left a free range in our hearts, it produces not only disorder, but every vile practice, and it stinks. It's disgusting. Oh, friends, what is earthly wisdom? It's acting and responding based on your heart inclinations of bitter zeal and selfish ambition. Those inclinations that are natural to us, that are earthly, that let our selfish ambition and bitter zeal dictate how we respond to others. But they're demonic. And they're demonic because when we act in those inclinations, we are exactly doing The schemes of the devil who wants us to act in that way. Now, friends, it's easy for us to spot out when we fall into certain clear sins like lying, like sexual immorality, like cheating, or like anger. We know how to spot those. But are you able to spot out when you're acting in earthly wisdom? Usually frustrations are an excellent soil where earthly wisdom flourishes. Examine your frustrations. Be cautious how you react and respond when you are frustrated. Now, being frustrated is not necessarily a sin, but you can be frustrated even about the right thing in the wrong way. And in such cases, frustrations can lead to sin if your frustration allows you to respond with, a, with the roots of bitter zeal and selfish ambition. So be aware of your frustrations. Be aware of not letting yourself adopt a victim mindset when others sin against you. It's tempting to react in an earthly wisdom when you're sinned against. So be aware how to spot out earthly wisdom. Point number three that the Apostle James brings for us is how do you spot out the wisdom from above? How do you spot out the wisdom from above? And James here is very practical, very plain. He gives us in verse 17 seven characteristics of the wisdom from above. These, this verse, verse 17 uh, shows up, provides characteristics that show up in how we relate to one another, in our behaviors, in times of frustrations, in times of disagreements. And if your disagreements are characterized by these seven characteristics, then you are displaying the wisdom from above. But if, if your engaging with others is characterized by lack of these characteristics, It's possible that you're engaging and and pursuing the wisdom from below. What are these seven characteristics? Let's look at them. The first one is pure. The wisdom from above is first pure. This means it's not corrupted. It's the opposite of hypocrisy. There's no hidden layers to it. What you see is what you get. Then it's peaceable. This means that the wisdom from above prioritizes seeking peace and a harmonious relationship as opposed to loving to argue. Loving to prove that you are on the right and the other is in the wrong. The wisdom from above cares more about establishing peaceful relationships than about having your own way or craving to prove ourselves to be right or insisting on our way. Third characteristic is gentle. This is the opposite of reacting impulsively, reacting impatiently, or reacting harshly. The wisdom from above gives us strength to be forbearing with others and gentle. A fourth characteristic is open to reason. This means the wisdom from above is open to consider... The other person's view. It doesn't mean that you're going to agree with them. But being open to reason is being open to hear and consider what the other has to say. How they're developing their logic. How are they getting from point A to point B or C in their views? Being open to reason. Number five full of mercy and good fruit. The wisdom from above has a hard posture that wants to show mercy and goodness instead of being aloof, being cold, being disinterested, or worse, being nasty and callous. And then the sixth characteristic is impartial. Now, this is a little weird of of a, in the Greek language, it's, it's harder to translate. Um, it's not about treating people fairly, as we might think in English, impartial means. Instead, it means not being judgmental or divisive. It's the opposite of judging with only partial information or perspective. Some explain it as not given to rashness in judging others. This means that the wisdom from above does not mean uh, or does not lead someone to develop a ministry of always looking for errors in someone else. Or always leading your responses to others by pointing out error. The wisdom from above does not judge too quickly or becomes easily contentious. That's what impartial means. Here. And then a the final characteristic is sincere. The word could also mean without hypocrisy. It means don't put up a face. Don't pretend for things to be okay when they are not okay. The wisdom from above does not simply sweep the dirt undercover, pretending it's not there. The wisdom from above speaks with sincerity of heart. It speaks openly, but in a pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, and merciful way. Now, some of you might love to hold on to this last characteristic. Oh, I know how to speak openly. It's not hard for me to speak openly. Some of you are struggling to speak openly and say what really hurts. Now, those of you who have no problem speaking openly and sincerely... But if you only do it in an ugly way, in a disrespectful way, in a demeaning way, in an attacking way, you are not guided by the wisdom from above. Sincerity for the wisdom from above goes hand in hand with gentleness, goes hand in hand with mercy. So if you have to choose between speaking sincerely and speaking with gentleness... If you have to choose between one or the other, guess what kind of wisdom is guiding you. Oh, I'll be, I'll be gentle today. I won't say what I really want to say. But tomorrow, you're like, all right, today is time to say what you really want to say. And you cut some corners on gentleness. It doesn't work. That is not the wisdom from above. One of the hardest things to do is to be able to speak Openly sincerely, and yet not harshly, to do it gently, to do it in a merciful way. But this is the path of the wisdom from above. These seven characteristics are all facets of the wisdom from above. We can't just pick and choose which one we like, which one we have a a stronger muscle for, and, and miss out on the others. I wonder which of these characteristics of the seven it's harder for you to exhibit. If you're married, talk to your wife or your husband and ask your spouse which facets of the wisdom from above you need to ask God to grow you in. Just ask that question over lunch. Now, you might want to ask it after you eat, just in case it opens up to a host of conversations that might take your appetite away. If you're single, ask a good friend who knows you, which of these seven characteristics are an area you need to ask God to help you grow in? Ask a member of the church to help you in this direction as well. And, and by the way, it is possible to react differently with different people in different contexts. So it's important for us to assume, or to to know that we should not assume that one person's feedback is representative of how we are throughout our various contexts or roles that we have. So it's important for us to ask different people about this question. As we think about this list of seven characteristics of wisdom that comes from above, Consider how each of them characterize Christ, first and foremost. Consider how these characteristics are a reflection of the way Christ interacted. Everything he spoke and taught was pure. He spoke and acted in order to bring peace, first and foremost, between people and God, and then between people and people. He was in heart not filled with bitter jealousy or selfish ambition. He says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. By the way, a great book that some of the men in our congregation are reading through right now is Gentle and Lowly, the Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. I heartily, heartily commend that book to you. But Jesus was gentle and lowly in heart. In Jesus, we see the perfect manifestation of each of these characteristics of wisdom, wisdom. The apostle Paul describes Jesus as, quote, the wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians 1. But Paul spoke of Jesus as the wisdom of God when he spoke of Jesus as the crucified one. Does it surprise you that the Bible would speak about the wisdom of God when it speaks about a crucified Messiah? Our only hope for the ability to display the wisdom from above is if we are connected to Christ. If, if he dwells in us through the Holy Spirit, apart from Christ, none of us are able to have these characteristics of wisdom that comes from above in any consistent way. In order to be united to Christ, one must turn away from their sin from their bitter jealousy, from their selfish ambitions, and rely on Christ, rely on His obedience, rely on His death, rely on His resurrection for us as the only means to be reconciled with God and to receive the wisdom from above. If you've never turned to Christ in faith and repentance, whether you are a visitor visiting with us this morning or whether you are one of our children or youth who are growing up in the church, if you've never turned to Christ, to turn away from your sin, from your selfish ambitions, and put that aside, surrender that, and surrender your life to Christ, I want to call on you today. I want to plead with you today. Turn to Jesus, who is the wisdom of God. Getting those good grades, performing excellently in in all your academic pursuits or in all your extracurricular activities or getting that great job or internship that gets you really advanced in life, those are ways in which this world may see or feel or think that you're growing in in wisdom, but they are not the wisdom of God. The way to pursue the wisdom of God is to pursue Christ. Christ. If you would like to know what it means to turn away from your selfish ambitions, from yourself, and turn to Jesus, our elders would love to talk to you. uh, When the service is dismissed, come and grab us on your way out. We'd love to set up a time during the week to meet and have a longer time to talk with you. But we want to plead with you, walking in wisdom means first and foremost, commit to Christ. Turn to him. Be united with him through repentance and faith. When we're united to Christ, we are united to his people as well. And the relationships we have with God's people are the stage in which the wisdom of God gets to be put on display brightly. The second way in which we see the wisdom of God displayed is not only in Christ, but also in his church. Listen to the words from Ephesians three ten. The apostle Paul says that so that, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Did you hear that? How is the manifold wisdom of God put on display through the church? Have you ever considered that the one place on earth where the wisdom of God is able to be reflected and showcased in a miniature is through what we do in contexts like this, through the church. The regular gathering of God's people. The regular commitment of God's people to follow Christ together. The holding on, linking on of arms so that together we follow Jesus. The church has a greater purpose than simply being a place where we come to watch a service or to feel personally fulfilled or edified. I hope that happens, but I hope your goal for a church is way more than that because God's goal for a church is way higher than that through how we interact with one another in the body of Christ, we get to put on display the manifold wisdom of God. When a relationship gets hard or challenging in the church, it's easy for each of us to withdraw or to go our own way. When we have been used to watching church for a year and a half on Zoom or online, it's easy just to be a part of the service in your pajamas and and, and And drink coffee and put pause when you want to and and just enjoy hopefully a nice service. Sometimes our tech is not that good. You know, we're not trying to we're not trying to make the most polished online experience for you. Honestly, we're trying to get you back to come here. Because this is what church is, the actual gathering of the people in physical presence. Yes, technology can help us for for a while when we have no other choices, but we want to gather together because in the gathering of, uh, of each other together, it's when we actually can step on each other's toes. Did you notice that? It's when we're gathered together, we can step on each other's toes. And when we step on each other's toes, that's when we have an opportunity to bear with each other, to forgive each other, to say to our frustrations, don't act up today. This is not your day. Well, friends, when we gather together and work through the difficult times of relating to one another, working hard, we actually put on display the wisdom of God so that through the good conduct that we have of, of working through meekness, in humility, the wisdom of God is put on display. But we should not pursue the wisdom of God only at church or only in our church relationships. The wisdom from above must also be pursued in our relationships in the home. Some of you have family members that are not Christians. And interacting with them may be very difficult, especially when the others are totally acting in all the earthly wisdom ways. In such cases, avoiding some dimension of disorder may be out of your control. Avoiding some of the vile practices may be out of your control. But even in such situations, ask God to help you not to add more fuel to that earthly wisdom, but to be an agent of peace who shows a different kind of wisdom among your family. Finally, a flash point, how to stay motivated. How to stay motivated. James concludes his theme on wisdom by giving us a motivation why we should pursue Wisdom. The wisdom from above. He says in verse 18, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Friends, the wisdom from above is a wisdom that seeks to live in peace in all our interactions. And the result of that is a harvest of righteousness. The peace we must sow is the peace of Christ. The peace we must sow is Christ Himself. His peace can give us a strength to sow in peace where there's no peace. Having the peace of Christ in you, first and foremost, in your heart, first and foremost, is what gives you the energy and the ability to sow a seed of peace where others are responding in no peace. You know, friends, when we seek to make peace, we reflect Christ's own work who came to reconcile us to God and to each other. We extend the harvest of righteousness that Christ came to accomplish. Our very first commitment in our membership covenant, which we have read earlier in our service, speaks of the priority of working towards peace in all our interactions. This means that one of the, one of the first commitments we make to be members in this congregation is to say we will work. We will work for the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Peace. If you are a follower of Jesus, and if you are a member of a local church, then working for peace in the church is not an optional ministry that you can consider not signing up for and letting others to sign up for. It is not a voluntary ministry. It is our first commitment to each other. What is involved in laboring to make peace? Let me make a few suggestions, a few applications, and then we'll conclude. What does it mean to labor to make peace so that a harvest of righteousness can can abound among us? First of all, it means having a posture to listen to the grievances of another. Have a posture to listen to the grievances of the other. It is impossible to make peace if we're not willing to listen to what someone else might have to say, whether against us, or about what's going on around us. So listen. Second, it's impossible to make peace if we're unwilling to consider the merits of someone else's reasoning. If you are saying, okay, I'll I'll listen, but in your mind, you're already dismissing them because you totally see all the flaws of their argument. If you're not willing to consider how they're thinking and their logic you're not working towards peace. Now, even if differences will exist and remain at the end of the conversation, we must be able to understand the other perspective even if we don't agree with it. In order to make peace, a third application would be we must restrain ourselves in dismissing others. We must restrain ourselves in dismissing others, especially those who are different than us. We must neither cancel them out nor give them the silent treatment be cautious of having a, a dismissive attitude towards others making peace does not mean that we will convince the other person of our views nor does it mean that we are letting ourselves be convinced by them it does mean and this is a fourth way to make peace it does mean to learn how to live with our differences Learn how to live with our differences. And by the way, we'll address this more in the third sermon when we're going to speak about walking with a trained conscience. Two weeks from today, Lord willing. But learn how to live with our differences. Learn to cherish and respect and care and love the other who is different than us. A fifth way we can work for making peace. Learn how to communicate through conflict and differences. Learn how to communicate through conflict and differences. It's so easy when we have the differences to speak in ways that are so harmful and divisive and destructive. So learn how to communicate through conflict and differences. It's possible that you may need help from other godly Christians to observe how you are interacting in a particular conversation. It may be helping you to ask both for prayer and for help, how to give and how to get guidance and feedback in how you interact in difficult conversations. Don't be afraid to ask for help. The elders and the members of the church would love to come alongside. A sixth way, a sixth application for making peace. Making peace will likely mean that you need to absorb the cost of being hurt by others. Making peace will likely mean that you will need to absorb the cost of being hurt by others. Now let me make an important clarification This does not mean that you should ignore abusive situations. If you are the target of abuse, either physical or verbal or emotional, you should talk to the pastors of the church and seek assistance. But recognize that in a broken world, part of making peace is to be willing to absorb the cost of being hurt by others. And finally, Number seven, the seventh application. Making peace will likely require your willingness to forgive past grievances, to let go of bitterness, the bitterness of being hurt by others in the past. Making peace is hard if you are still a prisoner of bitterness, of past grievances. Friends, it's scary to think that some of some from this Texts that we have looked at exhibited their evil roots and relational disorders, and yet they thought they had wisdom. It's scary to think that people who, who gave in to their bitter roots and selfish ambitions and disorder, they thought they're wise, and they boasted about it. Their destructive use of their tongue and their conflicts were a bright neon light to the kind of wisdom they were pursuing, And James says, walk in wisdom, but not in any kind. Know the difference between the two. Don't boast about the earthly wisdom. Consider the wisdom that comes from above. So what about you? What is your conduct revealing about the kind of wisdom you're pursuing? Let's pray.